welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. I'm Eric Morrow, and joining us again all the way from California, uh, enjoying his extended uh, Christmas break, uh, is Nathaniel Cogley. Welcome, Nathaniel. Hey, it's great to call into one of my own shows. That's yes, great, yes. Well, thanks for being in the studio hosting. Well, I'm very uh, glad to do that. You filled in uh, for me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, had a great interview with Dr. Kabbalah. Uh, and uh, that I, I listened to that show. Uh, I was in, engaged with uh, uh, other uh, commitments, and so it was. It was great to hear uh, the the back and forth that you had, and giving people some historical perspective on the impeachment process. Uh, I want to remind our viewers that uh, we are here each week on KTRL ninety point five FM at twelve noon. But you can also listen to our shows on SoundCloud. Uh, you can download shows uh, on uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, and then we post articles and other uh, related information uh, to the stories and issues that we're covering each week. So keep that in mind if you're not able to join us each week. If you miss a show, hey, it's still out there. Uh, we're uh, I heard from AJ, uh, who now we have Taylor, so we welcome Taylor uh, with the, with the last show, but, uh, I heard from, from AJ that our, uh, our ranking here at KTRL is, uh, rising in terms of our listeners, uh, and engagement with the show. So, uh, uh, evidently we're having an impact out there. And I think that's where we started and was our intention of, of offering something unique, uh, that certainly focused on national, international issues, but also brought in, brought in some local issues, uh, so that viewers here in the, greater Stephenville area, this part of the state, uh, could have the opportunity uh, through KTRL uh, to engage with with significant issues from week to week. Nathaniel, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, that's this is part of this with the show is we, you know, we had the intention of uh, – of, of having a nonpartisan show that was very much focused on aspects of issues that people might not normally engage with through mainstream media. Uh, what are your what are your reflections on that at this point here as we wrap up the partial year uh, in the debut of Cogley and Morrow on politics and we enter into the opportunity to do an entire year of shows? Well, I've really enjoyed this process, you know, and it built off from our relationship. We oftentimes have disagreed on some policies or some candidates, but I've always felt those disagreements are heartfelt. We both break from the two parties whenever we want to, and we've had a lot of those private conversations. And, you know, I like to make predictions, so I've made predictions to you privately before, and we've had good discussion. And it's been really nice to be able to take this, you know, out, into the public and kind of um, that tagline you gave the show, civility and depth, and kind of in our humble way, try to live up to that standard. Um, it's been very interesting because the, the station says, hey, we need 52 shows a year, you know? So that really, I think, prompts both of us to even pay a little more attention to all the headlines and, and dig deeper into what's behind those headlines and and try to uh, live up to the standard of every week being able to do a show that covers uh, major events and contemporary issues with that civility and depth. Um, but yeah, there's no the political parties don't pay us, you know, to to say what we say. We we have our our academic education. We have our own independent thoughts, and um, sometimes it leads to some really unpredictable on-air conversations. You know, we don't rehearse this. And sometimes I'm not sure what you're going to stay on air. So it really helps. <laughs> it makes right. it fun going into taping to go, well, is Eric going to agree with me this, on this or not? You know, right. so I've really enjoyed that back and forth we've been able to engender. Yes, I, I agree. It's uh, We noticed that in our regular conversations and that moved naturally into uh, doing a weekly radio show where we could have that back and forth. And, uh, and then also, too, I, I've noticed this in... Uh, in the people that we've invited on, we, we have a steady stream of people here that have expertise in certain areas. I mean, we, neither one of us claim to be uh, experts in all of these areas. We uh, enjoy the the realm of politics and we, we track it. We keep up with a number of issues, but that's been the challenging part of this show is to uh, make those decisions week to week. What should be the, the focus, uh, what issues we should cover in each segment, and then also prepare for that uh, to be, to be prepared to talk about in depth in a, in a way that brings the critical elements and information together 
uh, to offer our listeners something substantive that helped them to engage as well. Uh, but having that, having uh, the people in that we've had, uh, I mean, just uh, coming up on on shows just in the weeks ahead, we we're going to welcome uh, Mayor uh, the Mayor of Stephenville, who will be here uh, to talk about uh, things that are happening in Stephenville. So we'll try to bring that local element, and then also our new president James Hurley will be joining us uh, in a few weeks as well. So it's just. Uh, uh, great that we got this. We have this opportunity here with Tarleton State, uh, with the people that are here that have been so gracious and willing to come on and offer their perspective, perspectives and insights. And we're going to continue to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're blessed to have uh, in, in the department. I'm a department head for government legal studies and philosophy. We have great talent. You're the dean of the College of Liberal and Fine Arts, and I'd like to let the listeners know, no longer interim. You're going to be the permanent dean, and, Thank you. and it's great for the college. And you've been able to tap into faculty um, outside of the Department of Government and into other departments, uh, into the Fine Arts Department and also in the Communications Department to bring on great guests and also have those connections in the local area to be able to bring up you know, the mayor of Stephenville on a future show. Um, so it's it's really exciting. And just one thing is that we know a lot of people who have uh, PhDs and some expertise, but then it's another thing to get them to go on radio and actually, you know, put out there into the public sphere their opinions and ideas on such uh, contemporary and possibly divisive issues. And it's been interesting to see people go ahead and take the plunge and say, yeah, I'll go on record on this topic and go ahead and, and get it out there. So um, that's been fun to see that take place. And I wish more of that took place. You know, academics can spend a lot of time working on peer reviewed research that will kind of be important for some narrow academic discipline, but d- don't engage with the wider, very important political discussions that the nation and the state are involved in. And so it's nice just to know the, um, that we're contributing to those broader discussions and bringing in other people to make their contributions as well. Right. Well, and it really is an extension of what we do in the classroom, if you think about it. I mean, we're preparing students. We, we teach federal government. We teach state and local government. We teach advanced courses to our majors. And, and really, we're, we're teaching them, uh, giving them the tools that they need to engage with these issues and then to apply them, uh, both in the study of things that have happened, but also in, in analyzing contemporary issues and being able to bring to bear on those issues the knowledge they have uh, uh, and and the expertise that they have. And so uh, I think in a way, for me, it, this is important because we're kind of modeling uh, what what we all should be doing is engage citizens in our society and, and in our system of government, which depends so much on that. We are uh, uh, we're, we're analyzing the issues We're we're trying to understand them. We're trying to look at a broad uh, uh, amount, uh, uh, all the facets, as many as we can in order to to make informed decisions and to be able to analyze this and have sensible uh, discussions with depth and civility, like we said. So I, I think that's very critical uh, for us as as not just faculty, but as members of this society, as well as what we're doing and in, in teaching our students. Yeah, absolutely. We never wanted uh, our classes to come off as um, partisan. You know, you get students in from very different backgrounds. And, and um, I had some experience as an undergrad with uh, a class or two that I felt the professor was pushing partisanship on me, and I, I didn't like that at all. And, of course, I was in San Francisco, so I, the Green Party was being pushed on me, and, you know, bless them. But I, I just, uh, I just uh, didn't enjoy that experience. And so we definitely tried to have a nonpartisan. All students take Texas government, federal government, and it's important that they get those basic civics fundamentals down and not to have those pushed in a partisan direction has been important for me, and I know it's important for you as well. And uh, so hopefully we're kind of uh, modeling this type of ability to discuss these things. And the one thing I, I have noticed as we've got this show going is how we've been able to ride a wave of, a, of a, an issue week to week as it develops. And so this impeachment thing is a great, um, great case of like a wave that we've kind of ridden here. And we, we would start a show. Well, OK, we're going to talk about impeachment again. And someone might say, you already talked about it say, well, no, we never talked about the, the whistleblower, right? Or no, now they've drafted up two specific articles. We need to talk about that. And, and last week's show, we talked about how the vote went. 
you know, and there's all these um, developments that happen week to week on a major issue. And it's kind of like riding a wave trying to uh, process how this issue un- uh, develops week to week. You know, we're also riding the wave of the presidential election cycle up to the 2020 elections. That'll be House, Senate and President. And uh, now we've gone through the Democratic primaries. That's going to continue. That's a wave we'll continue to ride after the uh, impeachment wave is over. But that's been kind of fun to see those waves emerge. It, it has. And, and all of this has been uh, to benefit our listeners. Uh, uh, before we kind of wrap this segment up and move on to what, what our uh, uh our show is about today, but just to thank our listeners, uh, we continue to hear we every week through Facebook and through uh, interaction with people out in the public that that are listening to the show or they're picking it up off of SoundCloud or our podcast now. Uh, how much that uh, they they benefit and and how much what we're doing is is helping them to understand some of these issues. So we want to thank our listeners and ask them to spread the word, let other people know that uh, right here from Tarleton State University, the Stephenville campus, that uh, uh, people can get quality uh, uh, radio at, at KTRL-FM, not only with all the programming, but with this unique show that we're offering uh, to our region and uh, uh, just trying to engage people in, in the critical issues uh, each and every week. So we want to turn now to uh, what we want to use this show for. And as you, you'll see this all over in, in a number of formats where everybody's coming out with their uh, top 10 list uh, for 2019 as we wrap up the year and look forward uh, to a new year of 2020. Uh, but we thought appropriate here for this show uh, to look at some of the uh, issues that we thought were very prominent uh, in politics over the past year, and especially issues that have uh, some uh, continuation to them in that that they're not resolved or these are ongoing issues that are going to continue to have an impact uh, in the months ahead. And uh, so uh, so me, I, I went ahead and made my list uh, and, uh, and I sent it to Nathaniel uh, of things I, I in fact, it started out as a, I think it was a receipt slip from the bank in the car where I was trying to think about, okay, what are, what are the issues that come to mind? And then I got online and I, I did a little more research. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't see too many other lists out there and I wasn't trying to, to look at that way. I was just trying to say, okay, what are critical issues that our listeners need to be aware of that we will see and we may be covering on this show uh, going forward into the weeks and months ahead. And, and of course, at the, at the, at number 10, because I didn't think that this would be uh, significant enough in terms of, of national implications, although it may be someday, uh, certainly not international implications, although it's available internationally. Uh, but number 10 for me was the debut of our show, Cogley and Morrow on <laughs> politics. So I had to get that on the list somewhere. And if you're going to have a top, a top 10 list, then at least had to be number 10. Uh, I don't know what you think about that, Nathaniel, but uh, I just couldn't leave it off the list. I think that's great for self-promotion, Eric. So, yeah, number 10, Cogley and Morrow on politics made its debut. Of course, we're humble people, but um, it's been important for us to, to get out there and start this process and uh, watch this show grow. And uh, part of that, having a successful show is self-promoting you know we're doing facebook and soundcloud and the podcasts and and we hear back from some listeners we love to hear from more but yeah we don't just want to do it we want people to listen so we promote a little bit and i think uh, putting it number 10 on the list is just fine with me eric right well and, and we may by the end of the year we may see that move up a little bit i mean we are in the process <laughs> just to let our viewers know and to give them a little preview that we are planning a live uh, election night show uh, for November. Uh, it, it takes us 10 months at least to plan that. Uh, but uh, uh, so we've got plenty of time, uh, but uh, that might move us up in significance there in terms of uh, events in the in the new year. But uh, maybe that'll be on our list for next year. But I had to get it on there, uh, just a little bit of self-promotion, and it may have pushed some other issues out that you think uh, need to be on the list as well. Uh, but uh, really in moving on with this and looking at another issue that Really, I think for a lot of people in this country, unless you're in international business or in, or in politics, uh, Brexit has not been uh, on the forefront, uh, certainly not in the media, uh, uh, even with the impeachment inquiry going on in the vote and the reelection of uh, of uh, uh, in Parliament in England and Boris Johnson uh, remaining prior, prime minister. Uh, 
for me, Brexit and having taught some European politics, having taken study abroad groups to Scotland, uh, to Prague, and, and engaged with the, the European Union and, and, and all the different dynamics and, and aspects that it has uh, introduced and changed within all parts of Europe, uh, to me, has to be on the list. I mean, it's a very, very significant uh, development and change from what seemed like uh, in the last few decades, uh, this move toward greater levels of unification in Europe. And now, uh, you know, and, and uh, the United Kingdom is not the only one. You've had um, uh, uh, other countries looking at this. You had, uh, you know, Greece that was kind of a, a, a forced out to a certain degree uh, because of its economic woes. And, and so, but, you, but you, you see kind of a movement back in another direction that I think resonates with these pro-nationalism type movements and emphasis that we see even in our own country, where you go so far along a spectrum of integration uh, to a point that it begins to work against some of the political forces within the country that to me are very much tied to uh, regional identities where people begin to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm losing too much of this is getting out of my control and, and is going against uh, how I see the role of government, how I see these issues uh, in terms of my political ideology. And, and I think that's really driving this, um, especially, you know, some of this, if you look back, really started to gear up when there was strong consideration for Turkey entering the EU. And you really had this backlash uh, within within Europe, Western Europe, especially. Of, OK, wait a minute, th that this is not Europe and this is not uh, th this is not a culture and a country and a a history uh, that where it does connect with us has not always been very uh, beneficial. And so there was really a strong pushback against that. I, I don't know if Brexit may need to be higher, but there's so many issues that, that are out there. Uh, but I thought it should be on the list. Yeah, absolutely. That's a major uh, world event, especially that we've seen it recently that Boris Johnson just got control of the parliament and he's been all for Britain leaving. And so it looks like this is going to actually come to a conclusion and that's the major deal um but certainly the the european union and the sense of european identity being established throughout europe and how that's difficult you're right to these local cultures these local sense of nationalism that are in these cultures and i think some interesting dynamics here is one i mean the united kingdom is in britain it's not part of europe it's separated from europe so how much do they want to be a part of this um European Union. The United Kingdom itself is also a union, right? It's the union of England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. And so this is very cute idea of a union within a union, you know, that itself uh, poses interesting puzzles. We need to think about that in the USA. The USA is a union and potentially there could be a North American union, right? Unions within unions um, is very interesting to think about. And then also it seems to me, Eric, the more that a union tries to do, and the more that a union tries to take over, the less attractive it becomes to join it. You know, there's still a role for self-determination to be made. And when the, the union government starts to do micromanaged things, it becomes less attractive. You, you kind of want unions to limit themselves to big picture things, common markets and uh, defense and other things like that. And, and here there may be a sense in Britain that too many decisions are being made uh, out of the European system and not on their own. Right. Yeah. And, and, and we'll see that, too, even within the United Kingdom, because you see a, quite a difference in views on EU membership uh, between Scotland and, and Britain. And so that ten, that may lead to another referendum in Scotland on independence. Uh, you know, we, we don't know. I mean, the, the things are moving in that direction. Uh, so there, there are long-term implications uh, for this, not, not just uh, for Europe, but for the United Kingdom. And I think for the world in terms of, of uh, the uh, global economy and the relationships and treaties and stuff that have been in place uh, for so long. Uh, keeping on the international, uh, in the international arena, uh, the next one on my list was Syria. Uh, this has faded uh, here recently in the news, uh, but I think it'll, uh, <coughs> excuse me, it will um, be back in the forefront very soon. Yeah, Syria is a very big deal, um, and I think it's bigger for more reasons than just Syria itself. 
Um, so we, President Trump announced in December 2018 an intention to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria, and there was a lot of protests within his uh, Department of Defense, his State Department, that he was going against longstanding U.S. policy, going against some promises that some senior officials had made to foreign leaders. And Trump has largely tried to stand his ground and say, well, he's the commander-in-chief. He'll make those decisions. He's head of state. And we've seen uh, General Mattis resign. We've also seen that when he finally did um, withdraw, I think back in uh, the fall, um, there was a lot of pushback and, and concerns about, you know, Turkey doing the buffer zone. And we had a show that covered this and, and the future of the Kurds in the region. Uh, and we've seen that Trump has exerted himself as the commander-in-chief at the top of the hierarchy. None of these positions, uh, Attorney General or Secretary of Defense, are in the Constitution. Article 2 is about the president. And Trump, you know, whether people agree with his decision or not, he has the confidence to exert himself as the person with the authority to make these decisions. We've also seen him strike a middle ground, Eric. So there are still 600 troops in Syria, and they've now been charged to defend the oil wells that are there. So we have seen Trump behind the scenes make concessions on terms that he agrees with, but not to be dictated to from people lower on the executive branch. Right. And th- this is uh, uh, in part of that, I think that that transition and, and, and the, a little bit of uh, a mediation there in terms of the kind of strict focus there at the moment of withdrawing the troops, it real it shows you how volatile this area is. And I think that that has been and will continue to be uh, where you have this mingling and merging of cultures and identities. And uh, so I, I think this issue will be one that that will come back up again this next year. There will be some kind of conflict or crisis in that area that will lead uh, the president to have to respond in some way or decide how how he's going to respond. Uh, moving on to the uh, the next issue, uh, this is one that I put in. Just uh, part of it is keeping touch with regional and state politics, but this might be one that may be in the distant past in some people's memory. Uh, but we did have a Texas uh, legislative session uh, this year. And uh, there was a budget uh, that was passed. Uh, Of course, again, the budget for the state continues to grow because the population and the revenues for the state have grown during this uh, really long, long stretch we've had without any kind of uh, small or major recession. And the but the budget process and its outcomes were significant. Uh, one because the, the the major issue going into this state this legislative session was uh, financing public education, and the attention of our legislators was very much on putting more resources uh, into public education, uh, and and some uh, and much of this was you know we're talking about ten to you know twelve billion dollars and and more in some areas that that uh, in the different ways that it was financed, uh, but. One of the things that this highlighted was the trend that we've had in uh, our budget cycles in this state of addressing a crisis issue at the expense of other issues. And so, uh, again, we spend less per capita in Texas on government than any other state. Uh, and so the revenue sources are challenging. Uh, they're they're challenging because a third of our revenue comes from uh, sales tax, and then there's all these other taxes and fees, and then another third comes from uh, federal resources. Uh, but it's always uh, because of our growth, our population growth, and because of the challenges with our revenue system, we're outpacing the, our ability uh, to address these major issues. And, and we did have a show on this where we talked about uh, some of the challenges of the revenue process in this state. Uh, but I think this highlighted it this year because uh, I know we in higher ed, uh, we saw some challenges in funding because there was so much attention given to public education. Uh, what we're, we're forecasting or what some think will, will happen at some point is that we're going to have several of these crises in areas that the, the just state resources are not able to meet. Uh, and and you can't wait for another two years in a budget cycle to try to overcome a, a natural disaster at the same time that there's a crisis in um, you know Medicaid funding or uh, care uh, for uh, children or uh, public education. Uh, so th- this is something that 
is always an ongoing issue in this state in our in in our budget process. And it was one that really highlighted it in that the resources were so significantly increased for public ed, something that needed to be done and has been needed given the growth in our state population. Uh, but it it was at the in some ways at the expense of of other areas that that needed resources and needed attention. Uh, Nathaniel, I don't I, I, I've taught Texas government for a number of years. I know you've dabbled <laughs> in, in it a little bit, but I didn't know if you you know had any uh, uh, thoughts on this as well. Yeah, Eric, you're the native Texan and been here a while and have your head around these things. I'm just wondering what was the kind of political shift because the Republican Party has controlled this this state for a long time. What's the explanation be, behind their, the ways that they prioritize different things in this cycle? I'm looking at there was a 16% spending increase, but like you're saying, some areas didn't get an increase or, or are having to tighten, or I think, I think universities, state universities are having to tighten. What's some of the logic behind why priorities may have shifted from one two-year cycle to another? Well, it, it, I think it's still in keeping with some of the major priorities. The main one is a balanced budget. So it, it, if you don't have the money coming in, then it's it's not going to be funded. Uh, so that that's that's a critical thing in looking at the budget process as a whole. The second thing uh, that it was that you had you've had school districts that have continued to lobby and say uh, you're putting more and more mandates on us. You're requiring more things without additional funding. Uh, we've had trouble recruiting teachers in this state. Uh, we've had tr- difficulty in schools being able to fund uh, uh, the poorer schools, being able to have enough funding to operate certain essential services. Uh, the the standards in some areas need attention and to do to address those academic standards and to raise those, you need more resources. Uh, so th- there's there's been a, n- a number of things driving this. It's just that that the budgeting in previous cycles has not kept up with the growth. And so you have school districts, especially in our major cities, uh, that are growing by uh, a thousand students every year, and they just don't have the resources to provide classroom space and teachers and buildings and all of that without the assistance of the state. And so some of this was an attempt to stay, yes, within resources, knowing that, yes, uh, as I said, revenue has increased um, uh, the, because of the growth, demographic growth in the state, the economic growth of the state, but staying within that limit, but then allocating much of that growth uh, toward public education without increasing taxes. Again, that's that's a priority there as well, is how do we not add any kind of tax increasing anywhere, try to get a handle. So one of the mantras was, uh, we got to find a way to provide property tax relief. Well, most of our property taxes go to fund public education, but again, it's it's not sufficient in many areas, and thus you need uh, additional state funding. Mm-hmm. So if we if we well, move on... Very interesting. Oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say it's be interesting to see that go forward because Texas continues to get a lot of migration from elsewhere in the USA. People like me who have, have are educated and have determined their careers best off if they're geographically flexible. And lo and behold, you know, it's a university in Stephenville, Texas that offers the, the job. And migration also from south of the U.S. border continues in Texas as well. So Texas has such d- interesting migration issues. Also, um, the parties going forward, as we've talked about Texas being more competitive, uh, this kind of budget situation is interesting in Texas for a number of reasons. So it's uh, big in this cycle and will continue to be in future cycles, I think. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. Well, before we move on with our list of uh, the top 10 uh, political issues from the year, we're going to take a short break. So after the break, we'll look to move forward and all the way to number one. I think everybody can guess what that may be uh, in terms of the top issues of the year, uh, but we'll find out when we come back. Carlton Radio Network is proud to announce our new show, Planetary Overload. You are about to overload. Join co-hosts AJ Heyer and Colleen Hughes as they explore a new hobby every week. Subscribe to the feed wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the debut episode for an interview with award-winning game designer Steve Jackson in their exploration of tabletop RPGs. Subscribe to the feed wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the debut episode. 
Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on politics. We're glad you're joining us today uh, for our top 10 list of political issues in 2019 as we uh, wrap up this year and look forward to the new. We hope you've enjoying your holidays and the, the holiday season uh, and uh, turning the page into a new year, uh, which uh, as we have covered on this show with a lot of issues, uh, especially the list that we're looking at today of things that are, are ongoing, uh, political issues that were, were prominent in uh, 2019 that we know we'll be continuing and we'll see and, and really trying to to keep you aware of these as we go into the new year. Uh, Nathaniel's joining me from California uh, on his extended uh, Christmas break uh, with his family. Uh, so we're glad to have him uh, 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 through the phone in the studio uh, with with me for the show because uh, we always enjoy it when we're able both to be here uh, for our, our shows. Uh, we do want you to, to stay tuned in in the weeks ahead. We're going to have some great guests on the show, including uh, the mayor of Stephenville uh, and the president of Tarleton State and, and, and others as well uh, to focus on uh, some of the issues of their area of expertise and experience. So uh, you, you always know that you're going to have a great show that uh, is diverse, that has uh, focuses on aspects of, of uh, politics that will help keep you informed and engaged with issues. So moving on in our list of top 10 here, I'm, I'm really bringing these two together in the middle of the list, uh, and that is two uh, several issues that were very prominent related to the border uh, and immigration. I mean, that seemed to, if we, when we can go all the way back to the campaign trail with President Trump uh, and then with um, uh, Hillary Clinton, and then, of course, uh, as we've moved into this primary, which we'll get to on the list a little bit, we're not necessarily hearing as much about this uh, or much foreign policy at all. That's what uh, I think we'll, we'll be looking at on, fut- on a future show. But the border, uh, the, the building the border wall, uh, border uh, protection, the border patrol services, uh, the number of trips that the president and other high-ranking officials have made there, uh, the, the, and the discussion about the immigration process, uh, child detention centers related to that have got, it's still getting attention uh, in, different, uh, in different ways. But I thought this was a very significant issue that we know in terms of President Trump's time in office, uh, something he ran on was a, a, a defending the border, uh, uh, protecting it, uh, and also dealing with illegal immigration. Yeah, border has been a very big deal in a number of ways. Um, you know, he ran on uh, build the wall. He's going to run for re-election on finish the wall. Um, and we saw this start off right at the year. Um, first of all, I mean, there's been a lot of American presidents in the past that have suggested building security apparatuses and, and things that, down there. It's a, it's a question of priorities. President Trump has prioritized this to the point of a construction of a wall. And also interesting how the Democratic Party has kind of moved away. I mean, if you listen to President Clinton's State of the Union speech, he was all for border security. And now the party and some of their nominees, some of their candidates appear to have the impression that, you know, if people come, that's okay. Uh, They shouldn't have to go through this process. And so we see Trump really fighting for a secure border where people only come in if they have a visa or authorized to do so. And we started 2019 with a government shutdown, Eric, if you remember. And uh, uh, President Trump said he, he wouldn't agree to the budget until there was some funding for his wall. When that didn't happen, after a record 35-day shutdown, he did the uh, declared a national emergency, as he can under the National Emergencies Act of 1976, and he redirected $8 billion uh, from defense into the wall construction. And so we've seen that has uh, ramifications, too. Well, what really got a lot of attention in this uh, in this year were the refugee uh, the caravans, uh, the, the, the stance that he was making there uh, and how that uh, related to immigration policy in this country. Uh, and then that went over uh, and connected very much with, <coughs> excuse me, uh, these uh, child detention centers. Uh, and that uh, to talk about the politics of that, I mean, not just looking at it in terms of what is providing adequate care and 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 processing of children of illegal immigrants. Uh, but the uh, I think a, a big part of this story was the political mileage uh, that 
that each side tried to get out of this. So on the one side, you had those that were uh, very staunch about immigration policy, saying, well, we've, we've got to have consequences. On the other side, you had those that were saying and, and trying to, to really emphasize the uh, the inhumane treatment of uh, separating families and uh, not giving adequate care. I mean, this one's still going on. I saw an article just a few days ago where another uh, private charity group was trying to get in to give flu vaccines and were not permitted to do so under the the, the rules and regulations related to the the detention facility. Uh, I, I really this one I don't think is going to go away. I, I mean, again, a lot like a lot of these issues. Uh, there, there are going to be some uh, a continuation of this uh, with different groups, and, I, and I'm really waiting to see when it becomes a, a part of the uh, the election process. Is how much does this issue and these these related issues carry over uh, into the various campaigns uh, in the Democratic primary? Yeah, that one got a lot of attention, and people were very critical. Um, there was even an extra level of criticism. I remember there was some father tried to swim the river with his daughter and they both drowned. And, and some people had used the rhetoric, you know, it's the president's fault and stuff like that. Um, this is a difficult situation when you have family units or at least uh, people claiming to be family units trying to bring young children across the border illegally. Um, how does any country handle this? This is a very difficult situation. And I think this has come from the idea of Trump has said, you know, the adults are breaking the law. They need to go through a criminal process. And the children are under the supervision of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, the Trump administration has also questioned whether or not these people are the actual parents of the kids that some of the uh, smugglers and other traffickers have been using children. I also don't think we want to send a precedent of encouraging people in Central America or beyond to send their kids to the U.S., that somehow that's the solution for the family's future. Uh, so it, it's not clear what the best thing is to do in a very difficult situation when a family unit or unaccompanied children are crossing that border. It's a tough thing to deal with, and we can imagine both sides are going to have a lot of passion around this. One thing that, that President Trump has tried to do is the Remain in Mexico policy, which is part of the discouraging of illegal immigration, to say no longer will uh, family units remain in the USA pending their asylum hearing. But he, a lot of his wins on immigration involved deals with Mexico. He got Mexico to use 15,000 troops to patrol its northern border with us, and also the, made in, the remain in Mexico policy so that some of these family units can wait on the Mexican side of the border while their U.S. asylum claim hearing is pending. Um, and I've, we've seen criticism even of that to say that, you know, it's improper that they wait in Mexico. So immigration was big in the 2016 cycle. And as we approach 2020, immigration and border issues are going to be big, just like you're saying, Eric. Right. And it, it, it's interesting to see while we've, we've seen some incremental change under the Trump administration, uh, still the issue of tackling immigration reform is is out there and it becomes always becomes a very contentious one. And and, and the, again, it'll be in the cycle, but the progress that any candidate, especially if we continue to have a split Congress, uh, it's going to be very challenging uh, going forward. Uh, we move on to uh, getting into the kind of the top four here, at least on, on my list. Uh, but uh, one here that that will be ongoing and we don't, really don't know the impact. Uh, while we've seen some impact domestically with the challenges that uh, certain producers and, and farmers have had, uh, uh, the trade war uh, that is ongoing with China, uh, it seems like we're on the cusp of agreements. We see the movement in uh, reformula reformulating the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, with a new agreement between Canada and Mexico and the United States. Uh, th this is been one of those issues that's just been up and down over the past year of, okay, we're making progress. No, we're not. We're taking a step back. Oh, this is having an impact in impact in this segment uh, of the economy and industry. Um, I think uh, trade is, as it has been throughout the Trump administration, is going to be forefront uh, in uh, this effort to uh, get more 
uh, goods and services produced here in the U.S., uh, shipped, you know, exported, uh, but also trying to counter uh, imports. Uh, and and this has been very much a strategy of the Trump campaign. It's It's been sporadic at times. It's been, at times it hasn't seen that well uh, formulated or organized, but I would have to say that that while it's had some negative effects domestically, uh, it is pushing other countries to try to, to respond, uh, knowing that their their trade with the United States is very critical uh, for their economic prosperity as well. Uh, how do how do you see this, and and what progress was made, or what challenges have come up in 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 this tr- uh, this focus on trade over the last year? When I study President Trump, and you go back and try to see videos of him 30 years ago, what he cares about are two things. He cares about bad trade deals that the U.S. has signed up that are stripping us of our manufacturing, how we open our market to others, they don't reciprocate, that these are bad deals. And he also talks about why do we militarily subsidize other countries. We we put our, our bases around the world and and basically defend countries that they don't contribute to. These are things that he's been thinking about for for three decades or more. Uh, These are things that he is passionate about, and these are things that he prioritizes in his administration. I think um, he has a lot of success here, like you've mentioned. Finally, after after the House of Representatives impeached him, they then passed USMCA by a, a vote of 385 to 41. So that's a very big margin of victory to push that over into the Senate. So he's had a lot of uh, progress on the North American side. And also in China, I mean, even Chuck Schumer, who is the minority leader in the Senate, the Democratic leader in the Senate, that's one where he was supportive of President Trump taking on China. The tariff issue is something that I think is interesting, Eric, because it's not purely a partisan breakdown here. I've heard a lot of Republicans are opposed to the idea of tariffs. And then we see people on the Democratic side who are interested in labor standards and environmental standards and other things like that support the idea of tariffs from countries that do not have the same labor or environmental standards as the United States of America. Um, This is something that I think Trump has made progress on. Trump certainly is passionate about this, but it is something that it takes time to effectively implement these things. Something like China, it's the same party in power, and the current president has removed the term limits. He can play a longer game than Trump, who has a one- or two-term presidency. And so this is one thing where it's hard for America to make these long-term deals and to have them stick and to have our presidents negotiate with long-term deals in mind because our party, our uh, politics swings back and forth between the two parties, and Trump can only really make critical credible promises for, you know, at most up to five years. Um, but this is going to continue to be something in his reelection campaign, something he's going to run on and be proud of. And it's going to be something that he can get some wins on, I think. Right. Yes. I think it will be very, uh, prominent issue, uh, to his advantage as will be another issue that we're going to cover here in just a second. But before we get to that one, uh, on my list inserted in between, trade agreements, uh, and, and the economy, uh, which we'll talk about is the democratic primary. Uh, I think this is in the top three, of uh, political, uh, issues of this, uh, past year, even though that it, it ramped up mid year. And now we, we see, uh, the beginnings of the, the forming of a front group, uh, that with others dropping out, um, another debate that happened, uh, in the, in the last few weeks. And we're just, uh, uh just, uh, weeks away, uh, uh, from the, the first primaries. Uh, so this, this is really going to get a lot of attention whenever all of the, uh, impeachment issues and all of that begins to kind of fade. Uh, I think this one will come to the forefront, especially going into the primary season, uh, and seeing who is still, uh, out there running, uh, what are the what are the fortunes of uh, Joe Biden, who continues to lead nationally, although uh, uh, having not really won any debate, uh, but uh, but still staying uh, fairly steady, uh, while you see other candidates around him uh, vying for that uh, front runner spot in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, I think I think we'll be, we'll be talking uh, primaries uh, here over the next few months. 
Oh, I think we'll be talking about um, Democratic nominee for president up through their convention. I mean, I've been predicting this uh, brokered convention since the summer. I'm starting to see online there are more people getting on top of that idea. But it's been a fun process because it's been such a big field. You know, and there was a time when people were complaining that they were having two separate debates on back-to-back nights with 10 on, 10 on the stage for each one. Oh, I love that stuff. I mean, I just love that there are so many people throwing their hat in there, so many different options to choose. And what's going to be interesting here is to see how this shapes up as we actually get to voting and, and delegates start being awarded. Uh, I think one story in here has been the rise of Pete Buttigieg, just because he was off everyone's radar before. You know, people have been talking about Biden for a while. Bernie Sanders is, of course had a big campaign in 2016. Elizabeth Warren has some national prominence. But Buttigieg is currently leading in um, Iowa, New Hampshire, and and he was off everyone's radar. This is a small-town mayor from South Bend, Indiana, and I still don't think he's the nominee or the president, but he's made his mark on this primary race, Eric. Yes, he he has, and that's been... uh... Uh, very interesting to watch his rise. Uh, it's it's reminded me, as I've said before, about the uh, who who was going to run against uh, George H. W. Bush after uh, the the Persian Gulf War and and uh, you know Bill Clinton being really in the back of the pack and then stepping forward and making his name known. And so it is interesting to see uh, and to follow that to see what the possibilities are um, as we move on. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. And one one thing there, Eric. Also, the the other big thing that I think is Bloomberg getting in. Yes, and, and we talked about that, and uh, you have some insights into Michael Bloomberg. And as me, someone who's, who's not necessarily opposed to Trump, I do take Bloomberg very serious. He's a person of uh, great accomplishment, great wealth. He's going to be able to do massive media buys. Um, that was a very interesting late entrance into the race that I think really shakes it up a little bit. And again, th- there's all these unsettled business in the Democratic primary. Right. It'll be interesting to watch his strategy as it plays out uh, in the in the next few months. Uh, so moving into the top two issues, I know we've got just a few minutes left here on the show. Uh, I, I, I had this listed uh, uh, as the economy had to be in here. Uh, on the one hand, while we have the, uh, the national debt continues to grow, uh, we've had the longest period of time without a recession. Uh, and the uh, some of the lowest unemployment in the history of the country, the economy continues to be strong. I think that works in in uh, President Trump's favor. Um, it, we're going into an election cycle uh, with the possibility that you know it, it, it may remain that way. Uh, that uh, I mean, we just don't know sometimes, but it it, it really seems like uh, he can use this. Uh, much like Obama was President Obama was encouraged to do, but didn't do that that he he give quite a bit of attention to the success of the economy. Uh, you know, this isn't always dependent upon a president, but it sure can impact the president if uh, we have economic woes. And so this is something that uh, I think uh, really helps him going into this election cycle. Yeah, the economy's remained uh, robust, and there's still some very big structural issues to the United States economy, especially those uh, trade imbalances that we have, and the the, the deficit and, and the debt each cycle, the, the accumulated debt and unfunded liabilities. But that's not to say there's not ways to try to improve the system, uh, relative improvements. And we did see a uh, tax reform past uh, early in the Trump presidency. I do think that has had an impact. And I also think some of these um, trade uh, negotiations and maneuvers that President Trump has done has been helpful for the economy. When you hear someone that's entirely opposed to tariffs, they're always focused on consumer prices. Um, But another big aspect of economics is production. And we compete for productive capacity. We compete for where that billion-dollar factory will be built. And, and Trump's policies, I think, have encouraged business confidence and investment in the United States in terms of our productive capacity. And that leads to jobs here. And so um, this is something where I still think you know, we're, the U.S. isn't in perfect footing because we do have these larger structural issues with our economy. And, and our housing markets and our interest rates and our trade imbalances. But it's been interesting to see it relatively, say, strong 
um, into the Trump presidency in through 2019. Well, as we as we wrap up the show here, the the number one issue, and I don't know that we have to give a, that much attention to it as we have on previous and will on future shows as well. But impeachment dominates. It 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 really took over the news cycles the last part of the year. Uh, it, it has pushed so many other things out. That's why we thought it'd be beneficial to kind of recap and go back over some of these major issues uh, for 2019. Uh, so I don't, uh, since we've given a lot of attention to it, we're, we're really on a, uh, a holiday break and Congress is out of session. Uh, I, I just want to ask you here in closing the show, if uh, what other issues uh, that you see that uh, maybe should have made our list or, or would be if, if maybe it needs to be a top 15 because of uh, uh, some of the other prominent issues throughout the year. What are, what are some other issues we, we should give attention to here at the end of 2019? Well, I think you're right to put impeachment at the top. We've been riding that wave, and we'll continue to ride it in the future shows as it develops over on the Senate side. I think these protests in Hong Kong have been very interesting. You know, Hong Kong was a part of the uh, Britain under British uh, oversight, and it was returned to mainland China. And uh, the people in Hong Kong have been used to a different standards of freedoms and court processes and freedom of speech and elections than mainland China and how China has tried to deal with incorporating Hong Kong into China proper. And those protests have been resilient. And uh, I've, I've been, I know some people in Hong Kong, and, and they've been part of this kind of fighting against the government's ability to change laws um, that, to the detriment of the people's uh, ju- uh, judicial rights. So I think that's a major issue for 2019 as well. Right. I had a couple of, I mean, we covered NATO a few weeks ago. I think there's some developing things there. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the relationship of the U.S. with that country and that very strategic part of the world. Uh, there's there's just really so much. And as we've seen over the last uh, several months since we've debuted the show, uh, it, it, it we really never hurt for material. There are issues ongoing every week. Uh, and that's our goal is to just bring those to you and bring some of that uh, different facets of it that help you to be engaged. We hope you've enjoyed the show uh, and we look forward to 2020 uh, and uh, and a great uh, run uh, over that year with a number of different issues, especially during election cycle. Uh, I do want to thank uh, Nathaniel for joining us all the way from California. So it's glad to, to hear your voice over the phone, uh, but to have you uh, here with us so that we could uh, end the year with our dialogue that is always so uh, civil, uh, but but in depth, as, as we like to say with the show. Uh, so thank you, Nathaniel, very much. Um, I want to thank all our listeners, and we just want to wish you a happy new year, and we look forward to bringing you future editions of Cogley and Morrow on politics uh, in the new year. Thank you for joining us today. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.